What are you waiting on in your life? Everybody's waiting for something or for someone. Are you waiting for some clarity of something that you don't quite understand? Are you waiting for courage to be able to do something that you know needs to be done? Are you waiting for a friend, for a soulmate? Are you waiting for provision? Are you waiting for an answer to prayer? I don't know what you come to the sanctuary as you come with all of your hopes, with all of your longings, with all of your anticipations, with all of your expectations. What I do know is that right now, every single one of us right now is waiting for something or someone. And what we pray in that moment is, God, I will wait for you. In his timing, in his ways, in his knowledge. And we plant the flag of our allegiance on those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, that they shall soar with wings like eagles, they shall run and not grow weary, they shall walk and not be faint. And so you keep walking. And one day you will fly. And the things that we wait for and ask for in this life melt into the assurance of God's grace. And so turn to somebody right now and say, keep waiting. That's like a sermon within a sermon. That doesn't count. The clock's ticking, but that part doesn't count right there. Uh, I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Now it starts. Now it's real. Mark chapter 15, we're going to be looking at the most significant day in the life of history, in the life of the book that we've been reading. We've been in a journey that we've called Quest, and we started all the way back at the beginning of creation, and we walked through all the different chapters of God's story of freedom and hope and kingdom and division and exile and the return of restoration, and now we began to look in the life of Jesus starting in August, and we looked at his ministry first, and now we come to the culmination of Jesus as Messiah, as anointed one, as king, as prophet, as Lord. And so we're going to look at Mark chapter 15 today, but I need to begin, before we start to look at it for ourselves, I need to begin with a story. And the story takes me back to a time when we had a crazy transition in our family. We had two kids. We moved when our youngest daughter was eight weeks old from the New York City metropolitan area to the great state of Texas. You just need to know that in general, it's probably not a good idea to move with an eight-week-old child. All of the boxes, all of the chaos, it's also not a good idea to decide when you move to a new place, you know, none of these houses really work for us, so we're going to build a house. Land was really cheap in San Antonio, so let's just wait and let's build a house. So we get into an apartment with our eight-week-old child and our one-and-a-half-year-old child, and we're, and we're just kind of making through the transition of getting to know a new community, not knowing where to pick up groceries. You know, I'm getting to know a new, like, job. We're getting to know a new church and all of these different things. And Kelly is transitioned in her job, and her job transfers with her, and this is a long time ago where she's telecommuting and she's working from home. 
And so I go off to work one day, and I have a great day at work, really interesting, really stimulating, get to see the fruit of God at work. And I come home, and I open the door of our apartment, and this is what I see. I see and hear one child in a crib screaming her head off, tears streaming down her face. I see another daughter who's sitting in a high chair, supposedly eating dinner, but what she's really doing is she's throwing food to the dog who is waiting expectantly below. I see a wife who is at wit's end because there is food that is probably burning on the stove at the same time the computer seems to basically be having smoke coming out of it because the contractors need things, her bosses need things, and there are all these different things, all of these different streams, all of these different moments. They're converging all in this one moment in time that I open the door, this one day that I walk into, and I walk in and I see all of these different things that are going on. So I quietly grab some clothes and sneak out the door. <laughs> That's not what I do, right? I roll up my sleeves and I help. You know, one of the phrases that in early childhood other people say, but Kelly and I would often remind ourselves is, is this phrase, is that the days are long, but the years are short. Will you say that with me? The days are long, but the years are short. It's the kind of thing where, you know, when you're in certain periods of your life, it feels like the days last forever and forever, but in reality, those days stack up after a while, and then you experience the compression of time, the relativity of time. In other words, not every day is weighted and counts the same, and there are certain days that are more significant than others. In fact, when you think about the crucible, that is early childhood, you think of all of your life that's been a preamble up to that moment and everything that springs forth from that moment. I mean, psychologists will tell you some of the, the things that you do in, with your kids in early childhood. I mean, they're some of the most foundational and important things that you could ever do in the life of that person. Some of the greatest investments that you make. And so... The days may feel long, but the years are short, and it may feel cliche or like a bumper sticker, but before you know it, you blink and things have changed. When you read this book, not every day is the same in this book. It starts with the magnitude of the scope of all of creation and it narrows its way down into working through a family and through a nation and it just continues to focus and what happens is that the lens just zooms in more and more and more on the person of Jesus. And probably a little bit of what my wife was experiencing in that apartment, for most of the ministry, he's thinking, here are the things that I'm doing, and then there comes a point where you're reading and the verb tenses change to the passive, and these are things that are being done to Jesus. And all of time and eternity and history zoom in on this one day. Everything up to that point has been preamble. Everything will be forever altered because of what happened in the cross. Fleming Rutledge puts it this way. There were many thousands of crucifixions in Roman times, but only the crucifixion of Jesus is remembered as having any significance at all, let alone any world-transforming significance. And my question for you today is, have you really looked at the cross of Jesus? 
Have you really explored what happened when those two pieces of wood come together to form the crux of what we believe? And so I'm going to break every rule that I was taught in preaching class this morning that said you should never have more than three points. I have nine points this morning. You might be wondering to yourself, how on earth are we going to get to brunch with nine points? I promise you, it is fast because like being in that early childhood phase, these things are coming one right after the other. So my question is, what happened at the cross? Mark chapter 15 Let's start reading in verse 16, but first things first. The king became a fool. Verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into a palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him and falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off his purple robe and put on his own clothes and then they led him out to crucify him. Here is the one who is in charge. Here is the one who began his ministry by saying, turn your lives around. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Messiah is a word that means king. And what happens in this moment when we look at the cross, a sign that says the king of the Jews, the king has become a fool. The apostle Paul will help us to interpret this later when he says it like this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, it depends on your vantage point. If you're looking at this foolishness that comes from the emptiness of a king doing this, you can look at this and say, see, this is pure insanity. No king ever does anything like this. But if you and I understand that it is God emptying himself of his power so that we might be redeemed and that we might be saved, you see the cross not for pure folly but as the center of its power. And so the first thing that happens is that the king becomes a fool. The second thing that happens in the cross is that bystander becomes a helper. This is verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Here is a guy who is minding his own business. Here is a guy who isn't looking for God or looking for anything to be happening. He just gets pulled in and constricted into this moment of the cross, and he carries the cross of Jesus. You need to understand that the significance of this is that there will be no bystanders. There will be no people on the bench when it comes to the cross. That the invitation of the cross is not just for you to observe it, not just for you to notice it. The invitation of the cross is for you to enter into it and to participate with it. That the greatest maybe words that Jesus ever spoke were to say that anyone who wants to be my disciple, my student, must pick up their cross daily and follow me. You and I, like Simon of Cyrene, must go from being a bystander to being a helper at the cross. 
A third thing that happens is the cross. The king becomes a fool. The bystander becomes a helper. The clothed become naked. Verse 24. And they crucified Jesus, dividing up his what? His clothes. They cast lots or kind of a form of dice to see what each would get. This is a little lost on us because we we. We have so many clothes in our closet that we just think of clothes as one more outfit. Typically, the most valuable thing that a person owned in the ancient world was the clothing that you wore on your back. In fact, in the time of Jesus, if you were a mother and you were sending your kids out to, into adulthood, usually the last present that you gave your now adult was a new outfit so that this might carry them into adulthood. And so you can imagine and picture Mary here as she's watching this happen in the cross. The, again, not just the instrument of torture, not just a convenient way to murder somebody, but that the cross was meant to be an act of humiliation and shame. And so they strip Jesus and they take his clothes and they began to gamble for it. And this could be the very clothing that Mary had given to Jesus at the beginning of his adulthood, at the beginning of his ministry. And to know with that setting and with that context, when you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and we have sinned and we have grown old and we have turned our back on God, that the first act of mercy that God did to Adam and Eve was that he provided clothing for them. And now in this moment of the cross, Jesus is stripped bare into complete vulnerability. And one of the things that the New Testament picks up on is that you and I, because he was stripped bare, one of the things that they pick up on on this theme is that you and I have now been clothed in Christ's righteousness. He was stripped so that we might be clothed. And so the king became a fool, and a bystander became a helper, and the clothed became naked, and then the teachers, they became cynics. You know what the responsibility is of a teacher? A teacher is responsible for carrying the heritage, the tradition, the narrative, the story. I describe people, and my favorite part of my job is that I get to be a storyteller for the gospel in our moment in time to make sure that the gospel continues to be faithfully handed down in this moment in time, in this generation, in and through this church, that it's what I get to do. And yet, if you were not careful in this occupation, Sometimes you can learn a bunch of stuff and you can become really cynical and jaded. I remember when I finally got through all the hoops of being a pastor and pushed through to the other side of this thing that I had looked forward to my whole life, ordination, and I got to the other side of that. And you need to know, my friends, that many and a lot of the people that I met on the other side of that, they don't believe this stuff anymore. And they're just going through the motions. They're phoning it in. Some of the most jaded and cynical people I have ever met are in professional ministry. Psalm 1 says, blessed are those who do not sit in the seat of scoffers, but who take delight in the law, the story, the narrative, the redemption of the Lord. 
And yet what had happened over the years when Jesus is hanging on the cross, the very people who were supposed to be educated and trained to be waiting for the Messiah are here in this moment laughing at him on the cross. They say this, verse 31, 32. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. These are the ones who should have known better. And so what happened at the cross? The king became a fool. The bystanders became a helper. The clothes became naked. The teachers became cynics. The light became darkness. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. And now it is dark. This is not just a random image. When you go back to the time of the, the Israelites in Egypt, amidst all the plagues, one of the moments was the, the dispensation of God's judgment in the plagues was there was a period of prolonged and unnatural darkness. It was the sign of God's judgment upon the nation. In the prophets, they pick up on this. The prophet Amos will talk about it. The prophet Amos says this, in that day declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all of your singing into weeping. What's the religious festival that just happened in the story of Jesus? It was the Passover, right? That in the upper room, he celebrates the Passover with the disciples. The celebration of their freedom and their liberation and their redemption of what happens. And now, darkness falls over Israel in the same way that the judgment of God falls upon Egypt. And so, in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, it says, at noon, Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Even the darkness is not dark to you, O God. For the light is as, the night is as bright as the day. And so the king became a fool, and the bystander became a helper, and the clothes became naked, and the teachers became cynics, and the light became darkness, and then the chosen became forsaken. The chosen became forsaken. Hear this haunting passage here, Mark 15, verse 34. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here was the one who knew perfect fellowship with the Father. Here was the one who from the moment of all of eternity had never known isolation, abandonment, or separation from God. 
And in the cross, there becomes a crack in the Trinity and the love of God in such a way that we cannot comprehend. Because in that moment, Jesus takes on the sin of the world, the brokenness and the rebellion that you and I are a part of, and he takes that upon himself. And the Apostle Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And he took on that forsakenness so that we could become chosen. What happened at the cross? The chosen became forsaken. And then next, life became death. Verse 37 here. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his what? In the beginning, God breathes into the nostrils of Adam to give him the gift of life. The word for breath is the same word for spirit in Hebrew. Later, Jesus will come to the upper room again and he will breathe on the disciples and he will say, receive the Holy Spirit, the one who created all of life, the one who fashioned all of life, now stops breathing and dies. Life became death. And so the chosen became forsaken and life became death and then the barrier became an opening. It says in verse 38 that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain was not just a flimsy little piece of fabric. It was a really thick piece of fabric that set apart the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence uniquely resided. And in the temple, they believed that that was needing to remain separate, that only the high priest could go in of one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, to go in and to offer sacrifice for the intercession of the people. And there was that barrier, and then there were other barriers, that this is the only place where the priests could go, and this is the only place where the Jews could go, and this was the only place where the Gentiles could go, and this was the only place where the men could go, and this was the only place where the women could go. These were these nations, these were other nations. And every Every part of their society, like ours, was broken into different segmentations, into different groupings, into different fragmentations, and God rips from top to bottom the greatest barrier in all of time and flings open wide. Now us to understand that there is no such thing as sacred and secular in terms of its distinction in the sense of that God says every square inch of creation is mine. And so the chosen became forsaken and life became death and the barrier became an opening and finally the executioner becomes a believer. This is a Roman centurion. His job, what he's been trained to do is to efficiently and effectively kill people. This soldier is a professional murderer. He has seen hundreds, if not thousands of people die at his own hands. And this Roman soldier is very good at his job. 
and in following these orders. And you can imagine that after a while, if you've seen one death, you've seen of all, and it's come and it's go, but there was something different about this death. Not in terms of the, the amount of torture or pain. Not in terms of the, the detachment in which Jesus responded in the moment. But that there was something. He couldn't grasp it. He couldn't explain it. There's no way he could understand it. But there was something different about this person and about this death that in such a way that it says in verse 39, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. At the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, it says, this is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Mark will very intentionally not use that title, that phrase again, Son of God, except at the lips of demons who see Jesus for who he really is in the narrative, in the flow. No other human being, according to Mark's witness, ever uses that title again until we get to this moment right here where a pagan Roman occupying murderer takes one look at what's happening on the cross and says this was the son of God a title that as a Roman by law was forbidden to be used for anybody except in description of Caesar this is the real son of God I grew up in a tradition my friends that kind of apologized their way around a cross in the liberal framework of the Christianity in which I grew up, it was just kind of, maybe we'd read some passages, but we never really looked at it. We never really stared at it. We never really studied it and gazed in it because it made us uncomfortable. And I'm asking you, have you looked deeply into the cross of Jesus? Not as a bystander, but as someone who's being called to pick up that cross. It wasn't until after my lapsed faith and came back to faith when I was in college that somebody gave me a book that was entitled, it was from a local pastor, Six Hours, One Friday. It was a book about the impact of the cross by a local pastor by the name of Max Lucado. And I read it. I devoured it. And I wanted more. And it turns out in the bookstore, he has more books. And then there was another book that was called No Wonder They Call Him Savior and devoured that. And there was another book that was called He Chose the Nails. And those three books together, all of a sudden the kaleidoscope of the beauty and the imagery and the wonder of the cross started to hit me that this was the greatest and most important day and act of all of history. And I'd never seen it before. Max puts it this way. The cross, its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. History has idolized and despised it. Gold plated and burned it, worn it, trashed it. History has done everything but ignore it. How could you ignore such a piece of lumber? Suspended on its beams is the greatest claim in history. A crucified carpenter claiming to be God on earth. Divine, eternal, the death slayer. Every lie, every lure, every act done in the shadows. The king turns away from his prince. The undiluted wrath of a sin-hating father falls upon his sin-filled son. The fire envelops him. The shadows hide him. The son looks for the father, but the father cannot be seen. He chose the nails. No wonder they call him savior. 
Have you ever seen that before? The cross I put up on the screen at the beginning of the sermon is, is not just a random piece of art in the cross. These two beams that were put together were put together in the midst of a tragedy. Back on October 3rd of 2013, there was a migrant boat of Somalian refugees that was trying to make its way to Italy and somewhere along the lines, the ship capsized and most of the people died. In the midst of the tragedy, people formed little graves and even though many of the bodies were not recovered, they put up little places like this to commemorate. Look at this image here with all of the crosses. Why do we do this though? Is it just that it's a, a symbol that's based out of our tradition and our heritage such to the point where we don't know what to do in a moment like this? I don't think that's what happens. In fact, the image of this cross here is from a local artist in Italy who found two pieces of driftwood from the ship that had capsized and put the two beams together to form a cross. And this cross made its way across Europe on a tour to remind us that even in our moments of deepest tragedy, that victory is available. That he chose the nails for us. I know that not every day is the same. And that there are some days where the convergence of all these different streams come together. And what I want you to hear is that on that six hours of that dark Friday, Jesus went to the cross for you. And maybe you've heard about it, maybe you've sung about it, maybe you've heard a thing or two about it, but have you ever looked at what was done for us? This is what happened. And so will you pray? Father, in the midst of the busyness and the chaos of our lives, we don't always look at each day in the same way. And that over time, the long days stack up together and the years go quickly by and we've never taken a moment to consider what happened on that Good Friday. And so help us to see what was different about that crucifixion more than any other. that you emptied yourself of your royalty to become a fool, entered into ridicule so that we might be wise. That every bystander and observer is invited to pick up the cross to be a helper and that in your nakedness and your shame that you have clothed us in your righteousness 
to melt away all cynicism, to push away the darkness with light, and then in the midst of your forsakenness for us to be able to be chosen and that death itself would start to work backward and that life would begin anew. Break open the barrier once again, O God, and turn us, the ones who yelled crucify him, to now stand with you as witnesses to saying truly, truly, this man was God's son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.